Greetings and welcome to the fourth episode of the Old Patrol HQ podcast. I'm your host, Border Patrol Agent Gil Maza. As a Border Patrol Agent for over 23 years now, I have always admired and respected our rich, action-packed, and colorful heritage. My journeymen were hardcore, kick-ass alien catchers, and they passed on their knowledge, experience, and all our bad habits onto the next generation. Today, we have the honor and privilege of interviewing Old Patroller William Metcalf, an 87-year-old patrol inspector from Session 61. He went to uh, Academy at Fort Bliss, El Paso, Texas, and he will relate a little bit of his experiences in the patrol. Come take a walk through the history of the Old Patrol. Honor first, honor always. Understand me, okay, Gil? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Perfectly. I have fine. a froggy throat a lot of the time. That's all Makes right. It's a little complicated to talk. Uh, yeah, it was different in my day. I, I've seen a lot about your boot camp training and stuff that the Border Patrol goes through now, and uh, that that didn't exist when I went in. Now, uh, I had just completed four years in the Air Force mm-hmm. during the Korean War. And I had been an air policeman, and I had met some border patrolmen while I was an air policeman. Therefore, I had an interest in the border patrol. Took the test, had an interview, and got hired, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, the morning I walked in was a holiday. It was the 30th of June, which in those days was Memorial Day. I just went down to find out where the office was. I was supposed to report in the next day or two, <laughs> the following Monday. And uh, I walked into the office and some guy in pretty sharp uniform met me. It turned out he was some common assistant or deputy chief inspector. And he said, you're here now. Let's go ahead and fill out some paperwork. Mm-hmm. I said, fine. There was one other fellow with me, too. He had showed up. His name was Pope. Mr. Pope never made it through the academy. Ah. But uh, Mr. Pope made the, made the mistake of bringing five or six kids with him. And a guy can't do the Border Patrol Academy and run a family all at the same time. Mm. So he didn't make it. Ah, okay. Anyway... The day I walked in there, the, uh, the, the, the official that met us had us fill out some forms, and we were sworn in right then, right there, took the oath. Mm. And we were bored and he gave us a postcard from the C.R. Anthony Company in El Paso, and they sold river, rough duty uniforms. Mm-hmm. He said, you go down here. Buy at least two rough duty uniforms. And then we gave us the name and address of the Pumel Leather Company. He said, you go here, you buy a river belt, a holster, a cartridge slide, and a handcuff case. Hmm. And uh, he said, I want you back here tomorrow morning, uniformed and ready to go to work. Wow. And at the same time, he gave us a badge. He gave us a, 40, a Colt 38 Special Revolver, 
so that we would get the right sized holster for our pistol. Because hmm. they had big ones and small ones. I got an old Colt New Service was a large frame. And a box of ammo. And I went out, went shopping. Next morning I showed up, uniform, badge on, loaded pistol. I was ready to go to work. Wow. And what, I did go to work. What year was that, sir? 1955. And 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 what what's and then uh, uh so did you ever uh, did you end up going to the academy after that or? Yeah, I was scheduled to go to the 60th session. 60th. Wow. But it was full. There were it, they had uh, at that time sessions were running a hundred. What do you call it, cadets or trainees? Uh huh. So they had too many guys. <laughs> and they sent about half a dozen or so of us on a two-month detail to El Centro, California. And we drove out there, reported the chief patrol inspector out there, and they put us to work. Mostly line watch on the All-American Canal. Uh-huh. And uh, we stayed out there for two weeks or two months. They had some housing already. They had some government trailers there. In a lot, in a, in a trailer camp somewhere, and we just stayed in those free rent, you know. Yes. And uh, we worked out of El Centro for two months, and then when they were ready to start the 61st session, we were detailed back to El Paso, Texas, and uh, we went to the academy. We already had had two months of in-service training for Spanish and immigration law. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had all the wad cutters we wanted to shoot. We had found some place up, somewhere out of El Centro and some coolie somewhere that we could go shoot. And we burned a lot of ammo up with a fellow named there, Oscar Cooper. <laughs> Don't know if you ever met Oscar Cooper. No, sir. But he was, he lived on the range and he kept us supplied with ammo. Very good. And, uh, and so then I went back and I went to the academy. And the story goes on from there, you know. Yes. But their entry was different. Because, like I said, I walked out of headquarters with a badge and a gun, ammunition and handcuffs. The day I was sworn in. And you were ready to go. I was ready to go. To be realistic, I had just spent four years as a military policeman. Guns were not new to me. Yes. And I don't know about Mr. Pope. I, I, he kind of has kind of faded my history. Uh, he didn't come to El Centro with us. So he was in our class, but it, they kept him around there somewhere, I guess. So. And and how did you... I see this stuff about the military boot camp and said? I never experienced anything like that in my life. Hmm. They didn't have that when I went in the military. Yeah, we were fighting a war. We didn't have time for that bullshit. Yes. And uh, so I went through air police school and was assigned to McDill Air Force Base. Spent my four years. And that's where I met a couple of border patrolmen. Because I was shooting on the base pistol team. Mm-hmm. And I see these guys at the uh, range in Tampa and they had these fancy border patrol shoot 
in boxes. They were foam green and they had silver letters on U.S. Border Patrol. And uh, that's kind of how I came to know that there was a Border Patrol. Hmm. And that story goes on from there, Gil. All right. So, if I'm telling you what you want to hear, that's fine. If not, you need to email me some questions so I can look them over and have some idea what you want to hear. Okay, well, so far so good, sir, and uh, you are telling me exactly what I want to hear in regards to your experience getting started and uh, your experience, uh, you know, you you jumped into it before you even went to the academy, but you already had some law enforcement experience, which wasn't too bad. So what were your experiences like the first two months there before you went to the academy? Well, we just, we worked the night shift most of the time. They paired us up with another Border Patrolman, but I tell you, in those days, they had just hired so many Border Patrolmen, but just about everybody was still a trainee. Mm. I basically worked under the supervision of a senior trainee, and we go out there and lay on the, we had lay-in spots, crossing spots near on, on the canal, and we'd get there, and we'd look, spread out a blanket, get our binoculars, and lay down and, uh, on the blanket and just wait to see if any Mexicans came along. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had, they, they knew where all the crossings were and we covered all of the crossings. And that was about it. Uh, we didn't do any sign cutting in the desert or anything like that. Mm-hmm. We were basically used as blind watch troops. We didn't have any uh, fancy towers or anything down that area. Uh, they did have towers in uh, El Paso that you could climb up into and surveil the river. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have any of that out in El Centro area. In fact, they took so long as El Paso down because it had offended the Mexicans. Ah. So we lost a good resource there because the Mexicans were offended that we were watching our border. <laughs> Not much has changed, has it? No, no. It was, when I went into the Border Patrol, I thought, oh boy, I have got myself a job as a federal agent. I'm going to be free of politics. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> you know? Yes. It took a few years to figure this out, but after I got out of the Border Patrol, I began to see the politics more and more. Because we'd have congressional aides calling us and trying to get stuff for aliens, so we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. But the Border Patrol out on the border doesn't see that kind of stuff. I see. So I started out, Gil, I was a Border Patrolman, and well, my first duty station was Yuma, Arizona. Ah, okay. I, I, re- I retired out of Miami. I was the assistant district director for investigations when I retired. Oh. I held a grade of GS-14, which is one of the four highest grades in the United States. And I was in Florida. I had started in Florida, and I wanted to retire in Florida. So I just hung on there till the bitter end, which was when I turned 50. Okay. Took my retirement and left. And how many years had you put in in, 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 uh, in law enforcement between Border Patrol and Immigration? Just those four years in the military. 
Yeah, and then uh, you did four years in the military, four years, uh, almost five years in the Border Patrol, and then how many years in immigration? Well, the balance of 28 years. Ah, 28 years. That's what I was getting at. Well, that's yeah. a... That's, I, I quit when I was 50. Things were just so in my life that it was convenient for me to retire when I was 50, and that's what I did. Yeah. I wanted to get out of Miami. I had a son who was just about ready to enter high school. I had property up in Lake Wales, Florida. I wanted to build a home there. I wanted my son to go to high school in Lake Wales. So we retired and moved north. Ah, uh, okay. And we were back to 27. We were 27 miles from my wife's hometown. So it was a full circle. Gotcha. And uh, do you have any um, any good uh, memorable uh, war stories you want to share with me uh, while we're at while we're here? Are we recording? Yeah, I'm. I'm go. I just go ahead and recording because uh, yeah, you know we're. It sounds like we're already getting through this interview pretty good as it is. Well, there weren't many war stories uh, when I was in Yuma. That was my first duty station was Yuma, Arizona. We did a lot of line watch out there. Uh, we had one place where we could set up trip lights and uh, watch three different trip lights and physically watch another crossing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a crossing, but it was an area where they had to come through. It was in an area west of Yuma where the All-American Canal came down close to the border and went west to Los Angeles. So every Mexican coming through that area had to get across that canal or come by the area where we were waiting for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that was in the old days, Gil. Uh, you got to realize, uh, you know, we're high tech now. We thought we were high tech then. <laughs> we were using monofilament fishing line for our trip lines. Oh. And monofilament fishing line had just been invented a year or two before. Wow. There were no computers. There were no cell phones. Some of our vehicles didn't have radios in them. If they were, then they were the old AM radios, which weren't all that good anyhow. Yeah. So we're, we're talking ancient history here. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, wasn't anything too exciting. We just caught a bunch of wet. That's all we did in those days was catch wets. You could still call them wets back then. Yes. And uh, as you got a little further along in the service, there you got the sign cup down on the desert by San Luis, Arizona. And uh, we had a drag road we maintained out east. And... Uh, Oh, went out 10, 12 miles, I guess. A lot further than the Mexicans wanted to walk. Most of them just walked to the end of the high fence, was about two miles. Mm -hmm. And uh, then they'd come across with a five-star. It was a like a 10-foot cyclone fence with concertina wire on top of it. And when they got to the end of that high fence, it was just a five-strand barbed wire fence mm -hmm. with a monument every mile. So... They walked out there somewhere, then they would come across the border. We'd pick them up coming across the drag road. Yeah. And they had 
20 miles before they could get to Yuma. We could usually catch them out like that. Back in that days, it was all desert. I understand it's all built up now and urbanized, but back in those days, it was pure desert. Mm-hmm. So it was easy tracking. It was pretty much flatland. You could run it in a Jeep. We didn't have any horses. Never saw a horse was in a Border Patrol. But uh, I was familiar with Jeeps. That was fine. We track them down with those. And that's and, did uh, you have? Did you drive primarily? Is that what you drove during those days? Is uh, jeeps? Yeah, we had four cylinder Willys jeeps. The International Scout hadn't been invented yet. Yeah. And we had jeeps, and we had Chevy cargo vans. They were the old style van. You know, we had a three quarter ton van. The engine sat out front of the cab. Mm-hmm. There was a hood, you know, and we caged the back of them. Grab a wet, you'd stick them in that van, hit it there till either took him back or somebody came by and picked him up. And uh, in those days, crossings were few and far between. Uh, on a good night, we might catch three, four aliens. Uh, none of this business of 40 or 50 or 100 people coming across. Yeah. It was peaceful. Mm-hmm. We had just cleaned out the border. When Eisenhower took over as president, he appointed Joseph Swing, a paratroop, a paratroop general, to be commissioner of immigration. Mm-hmm. And his orders were to clean the United States out from California to Texas. Get rid of all those Mexicans. And that's basically what they did. They swept the Southwest clean of Mexicans. By the time I got in, that drive was pretty much over. Mm. But we still had some kind of cross. But it was peaceful. The cartels hadn't been invented yet. Drug smuggling was not a problem. I never caught a load of drugs, Gil. Okay. I never caught a smuggled load of Mexicans coming across that border. Uh, we just got mostly two, three, four Mexicans. Typically, they were... Mexican farm boys from down the interior somewhere. Mm-hmm. Usually you'd have a couple of brothers and a couple of cousins or something traveling together. They'd come across the border. They'd track them down, catch them, send them back. And what was... At that time... Go ahead. I was going to say, what was, the, what was processing them like in those days? Take them back to headquarters, stand to the shift, sit down at the typewriter and out of 1913, take a little affidavit from and uh, stick them in a detention cell. We had one great big huge detention cell there in headquarters. And every day somebody come by and take them to, usually over to the detention camp that they had at El Centro, California. Then periodically they'd run a train. They'd start out west. They'd load all these aliens on a train. It'd work its way across the southwest border, picking up aliens. They'd go to Brownsville, Texas, and they would load them all on a leased cargo vessel. Mm-hmm. And they would take them down to Veracruz, Mexico. And they would kick them off and kick them back into Mexico at Veracruz. And that put them a couple thousand miles from the border. In those days, that was a pretty good solution because air travel was not something people did. 
and those boys have pretty much walked to the border. Mm -hmm. Now they had another thousand mile trip or so back to the border. A lot of them had to walk right by their own hometown to get to the United States again. They never got any further. It worked. Mm. And I rode one of those trains once and put you on a, on a train, you ride, you know, you just have a, an old coach load full of aliens and you'd have a couple, three border patrolmen in each car to keep order. And we'd haul their butts all the way to Texas <laughs> and get rid of them that way. It's like our current ATAP. We used to have an ATAP program that used to try to, um, we try to, to deport them farther away, farther down, either in Texas or Arizona from California, just to make it a little harder next time for them to get back. Yeah. Well, we took them all the way to all the way to Veracruz, Mexico. That was about as far as we could take them by boat. And uh, it, the system works. Yeah. 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 Now, um, did did you um, did you ever have any close calls while you were out working there, uh, working the line? No, yeah, I spent uh, twenty eight years with the immigration service, including the border patrol. Uh huh. I never had a gun pointed at me. I never had to fire a shot at anybody. It was peaceful. Okay. And uh, I was on the pistol team. I used to shoot on the border patrol pistol team. Every sector had a local pistol team. I was always on that. Yeah. When I got to Yuma, Bobby Jarrett was a chief patrol agent. He was a former big-time pistol shooter. Somebody told him that a guy named Metcalf was coming, and Metcalf was a pistol shooter. And I had been. I had been a shooter in the Air Force on our local team. Wasn't all that good. But, uh, I'm sure and you I learned to be better in the Air Force, in the military, I mean, not military, in the Border Patrol. Okay. And I traveled with the blue team, went to a few matches, but I never got as good as the big-time shooters. I left the Border Patrol too soon. I never developed. So, that took care of that. Ah, okay. An interesting story about how I got into the Border Patrol was that... Uh, I told you I was on this Air Force base team. Yes, sir. And we shot monthly at a match in Tampa. Well, I had a big pistol match in the winter called the Tampa Midwinter Pistol Matches. People came from all over the United States. The Marines sent their team in. The Army sent their team. Border Patrol sent their big team. Everybody who was anybody who had a pistol team was there. Mm-hmm.
and first prize is a new pistol. Hmm. I said, well, I am interested. And so I worked that target detail. Now, during the week that we were working, you got to practice for this match you were going to shoot on Saturday. And uh, they assigned a well-known pistol shooter to coach you. Well, that assigned to me was Bill Tony, who had been national pistol champion in 1952. You know, Tony was a big-time pistol shooter. And so I got to spend a week with Bill Tony practicing and developed even more interest in the border patrol. Well, when I got to the Air Force, I had plans of going to Pennsylvania to work with my stepfather, mm -hmm. who ran a little construction company. That did not work out. Mm. And I could see it was not ever going to work out. So I found out that they were giving the test with the border patrol up there in Pittsburgh. I went and took the test. And when I gave up on Pittsburgh and moved back to Avon Park, Florida, I notified them that they could reach me in Avon Park, Florida. And a couple of months later, I was invited to come to an interview, an oral interview in Tampa, Florida. I went over and went through that. And they were interested, of course, in the fact that I had been a military police officer. Yeah. You know, I'm a policeman. And they are also interested in the fact that I've been a competition shooter to some extent. And uh, I got by the interview and they sent me for a physical. And I assumed that once I took the physical and passed that I probably had a job coming. Mm -hmm. A couple months later, I got a telegram telling me to report to the chief patrol agent in El Paso, Texas. Second or third of June, something like that. Yeah. And my annual salary would be $3,795 a year. Big money in those everybody days? Wondered, everybody wondered how I could afford to go to work for that kind of money. <laughs> I, said, I said, man, that's a steady job. It's 40 hours a week for the, for the rest of my life. <laughs> How can I not take it? Yeah. And uh, so that's what got me to El Paso to join the Border Patrol. Now you it was all because of Bill Tony. Ah, yeah. Now you had said that um, at the time there was a lot of guys that would jump into the Border Patrol as a stepping stone uh, to continue on moving in a career. And that's what you did. That's right. I didn't know anything about this. When I hired on, all I wanted to be, Gil, was a border patrolman. And after I was in the border patrol for a while, I came to realize that we were part of a bigger outfit, the Immigration Service, and that there were officer corps positions available there mm -hmm. that paid more money and were in different locations, you know? Yes. Well, while I was at Yuma, Arizona, after a couple of years, a position opened up in Blaine, Washington for a patrol inspector. So I applied for that and got that job and transferred to Blaine, Washington. 
and worked at Canadian Water for a couple of years. Totally different duty. You, you wore Class A uniforms. You drove a patrol car. No more Jeeps. And uh, while I was up there, I continued to shoot with the Border Patrol. I was the uh, range officer for the Blaine's uh, for the Blaine sector. Mm-hmm. I was responsible for conducting, uh, you know, the quarterly qualifications and that sort of thing. But uh, the duty was all Class A uniform stuff. And uh, it was good duty up there. I'll bet. But uh, a, jo- a job opened up over in Haver, Montana. <laughs> and they were looking for an immigrant inspector over there. And we all knew that immigrant inspectors were going to go to grade nine. Mm. At that time, we were grade eight patrol inspectors. Okay. And if I took an immigrant inspector position, I would be at GS9 shortly. And I would also be eligible for that immigration inspector 31 overtime. Mm. So I applied for and got that job and went to, left the Border Patrol in January 1960 and went to become an immigration inspector. And uh, that was just my first little step up the ladder. And And then? Well, I didn't really care for Haver, Montana. So after three years, I managed to get a transfer to Chicago International Airport at O'Hare Airport as an inspector. And I moved to Chicago. And uh, the overtime was not as good there because we were more of us sharing it. But I enjoyed the duty fine. But then they moved me downtown to a windowless office. Actually, it was a fan room in the federal building. (laughs) They were crowded. And I was processing first petition immigration petitions. And uh, I really didn't care for that work. Was stuck in a windowless office five days a week. So I went over and talked to the chief of investigations. He sent me up to see the district director. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to the district director and I said, Mr. Lehman, I am here on a two-year rotation. In two years, you're going to have to rotate me out here back to a border patrol job somewhere. said, I will trade that border patrol job for a position as an investigator in Chicago. And he agreed to that, and I went to investigations. Mm-hmm. And it was like being back in the border patrol. I was back on the street with a partner. I was out hunting illegal aliens. Locking those suckers up and shipping them out. <laughs> I, I loved that. You know. Yeah. We could quite, we could fill a car up with eight, ten Mexicans in half an hour down there in in the area where the Mexicans lived. There were plenty of them to be had. Yeah. And uh, I did that for a number of years, and uh, then they moved me to general investigations, and I teamed up with a fellow named Don Russell some people may have known he has since died. But we kind of teamed up together. We weren't really assigned together, but he kind of picked out a partner to work some areas with. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are some areas where you needed a partner. And they started, Don was another pistol shooter. We were kind of a couple of randy guys, 
ready to go. And they kept, started throwing us some of the difficult cases. They had some bad actor they wanted to arrest, and they sent us out to get him. Yeah. And so that's what we did for a number of years. Sounded like good uh, work. I was quite happy in Chicago, Gil. Mm-hmm. Until things got to the point that the Chicago Police Department authorized their police officers to carry two pistols on their gun belt. And I said, this time's getting too freaking tough for me. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm out here working these black neighborhoods and uh, other areas that are undesirable. And I'm all by myself most of the time. What I first thing I did was I went and bought myself a nine millimeter Browning high power and quit carrying my five shot chief special. I wanted something had more bullets in it. Yeah. That that wasn't legal. It was never authorized, but I carried anyhow. <laughs> I had a bad attitude. My attitude was better to be fired than buried. Yeah, but uh, tried by uh, tried by twelve than carried by six. Here you go. So, I carried that gun for the rest of my career in Chicago. And then one day an opportunity came up. Uh, there was a vacancy for a criminal investigator in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. And I put in for that. And I got it. <laughs> well, my wife was from Florida. Mm-hmm. We, we wanted to move back south. We'd lived in Washington, Montana, and Chicago. We'd frozen our tail off at all of those places. Yeah. And so we went to New Orleans. And I was there about a year doing investigations. And I had a lot of experience with the local boys down there didn't have because I had worked in a big city like Chicago. Yeah. And we saw a lot of things in Chicago that you just don't see in a little town like New Orleans. So, I was there a year and our supervisor retired. He was sick, we didn't know it, but he died a few weeks later. Oh. Anyhow, I applied for his job. And heavens to Betsy, I got a next thing I knew, I was a supervisory investigator. <laughs> and I was responsible for the investigative program within five states down there. And uh, that was all right. I, I just started learning how to be an investigator. I had a crappy old district director named Troy Adams, and he was a professional manager. I mean, he could manage. Mm-hmm. I think he's a lot like our president, Donald Trump. Very demanding, a perfectionist. Yeah. And I really didn't like working for Troy Adams that much. But I'll tell you, Gil, his, his district just clicked along like clockwork, you know? Yeah. Everything was just as it should be. And uh, I learned from him what I could. And uh, I spent about five years there. Now you want a war story about New Orleans? Absolutely. We had a New 
Orleans at that time was the second largest seaport in the United States. They had a border patrol sector that had to do with the crewman control. We didn't work that. But uh, we had a certain amount to do with crewmen. And uh, we had a Jewish vessel anchored in the river. There was no lot of dock space. Everybody anchored in the river. You had to take a, a pilot boat out to the boat, climb up one of these ladders, you know, one of these real steep stairways that goes up the side of a ship. Mm -hmm. Climb up that ladder to the top. They're usually 30 feet or more going up. And... Uh, so there was this Jewish vessel out there, and the crew mutinied. But they were still within their 29-day crewman period. Mm -hmm. And uh, the shipping agent came to us because the crew mutinied. All the officers left the ship. And uh, the shipping agent wanted her ship back. The officers wanted her ship back. And uh, so Troy Adams called me and said, Bill, explain the situation about the boat. He said, the D1 permits for those crewmen expire at midnight tonight. He said, at that point, they're no longer crewmen. They are illegal in the United States, and we can arrest them. Mm. He said, I want you to take a detailed man out there. After midnight, I board that boat and arrest that crew. <laughs> and I thought, okay. He said, there is one problem. I said, what's that? He said, there's an armory on that boat. They've got Uzi submachine guns in it. And the crew thinks they were able to disable all of them, but they're not sure. Oh. So I said, yes, sir, and I got my seven investigators lined up. Told them to bring the heaviest armament they had and be ready to go out and board that boat after midnight. I called the border patrolman over there at the chief patrol agent's office and uh, borrowed some border patrolmen from him to back us up on up that ladder. Oh, yeah. And I had another four or five border patrolmen that were going to go up with us. There weren't a whole hell of a lot of border patrolmen there. And uh, so we were prepared to go out and board that damn boat after midnight. About 11.30, I called in the district church. He said, Bill, call it off. The crew has surrendered. They're going ashore now. And we don't have to take that boat. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. And I was quite thankful about that because I never knew how that was going to work. Yeah, I'll bet. But that was going to be my detail. I had made my mind up. I was going to be the first guy up that ladder. And we were going to either arrest people or shoot people, one way or the other. But it resolved itself. No problem. Well, it looks like, looks like to me that you still had a lot of board patrol agent in you then. Could be. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody that worked for me was an ex-border patrolman. Okay. So you were still... We weren't hiring Border Patrol and off the street, or investigators off the street yet. Everybody, the Border Patrol was feeding all our men to us. So that's how it went. Ah. And the only other interesting thing I can think of that happened 
was when I was in Yuma. They had that Hungarian Revolution over there in Hungary in 1957. Mm-hmm. And we took thousands of refugees. When it all settled down, we had all these Hungarians. And so they opened up Camp Kilmer, an old military base in New Jersey, brought all those refugees to Camp Kilmer, and made that a huge processing center to process these aliens and send them out to homes in the United States. And they detailed a whole bunch of border patrolmen. We flew up to Camp Kilmer, and border patrol brought cars in, and we provided security for that base. Mm. We did that for a couple of months. And it wasn't long before we realized our biggest problem was not keeping the Hungarians in there. Our biggest problem was keeping Hungarians who had been patrolled paroled from sneaking back into the camp because when they got outside the camp they found they had to work for a living. <laughs> no, in the camp everything was free. Food uh-huh. was free. Clothes were free. Tons of free underwear and all kinds of garments to wear. Yeah. Everything they wanted was free. As quick as we put them out the door on a parole status they were expected to work and earn money and support themselves. Yeah. A lot of them weren't ready to do that. Yeah. And they would try and sneak back into the base. But other than that, it was a rather quiet detail. It was just a long way from home. And in the wintertime, New Jersey weather's crappy in the winter. Mm-hmm. So I was glad to see that ending get back to chasing Mexicans again. Yeah. Now, sir, um, how old are you right now? 87. 87 years old. 87. Yes, sir. Yeah, I was 22 when I joined the Border Patrol. Yeah, I was probably the youngest guy in the Border Patrol, in my class. Mm-hmm. I remember one time we were out. Classes for the day were over. We, our academy was at Fort Bliss. There in El Paso, we were in old officers' barracks there, mm-hmm. and a bunch of us are going down to a local bar, and the bartender wouldn't sell me a beer. <laughs> I didn't look old enough to be drinking. Best I could get was a Coke. Oh man! And uh, having Border Patrol badge and stuff with me, but now nah, I wouldn't do it. Uh, I just wasn't old enough to have a beer. So I never got a beer in that bar again. Oh, wow. Wow. Took a few years before people started taking me serious. I just looked so young. Ah, yes. But then I always was kind of pretty, so that explains it. (laughs) Well, based on your last picture, especially um, you're wearing one of those old patrol hats, uh, you're still pretty. Yeah, I am. (laughs) I got a great big old handle mustache. Handlebar mustache and a beard and I dark girl on that. I just want to see how big a how big a mustache I can grow. Nice. Couldn't ever have one when I was in the border patrol. That was back when you couldn't have tattoos. You couldn't have much more than a little pencil mustache, no beard, no sideburns. Now we had a dress code. Mm-hmm. When I became a border patrolman, you had to be five foot eight tall. 
160-some pounds. And, uh, of course, that all went by the board when they started hiring the girls. Uh, there weren't many five-foot-eight girls that wanted to be Border Patrolmen. Mm-hmm. But I never saw any Border Patrolmen. They were, I was gone before they started. Yeah. And you, um, you know that we, uh, uh, Border Patrol is allowed to wear beards now, right? I do. And I presume you can wear a man bun. <laughs> I'm wondering if I should just let my hair grow and grow a man. <laughs> well, just so you know, I personally am not going to wear a beard until I retire. You're not retired? Not yet, sir. Not until next March. My goodness, I didn't know that you were still in the patrol. Yes, sir. I'm, uh, I'm working. I started out in Oklahoma Station, and I worked my first 22 years there. And I'm finishing off my career in San Clemente Station now. California. Yeah. Now I got a question for you. Are you going to stay in California when you retire? It, it looks that way, sir. It looks that way. My fam, my wife's family is here. My grandchildren are here, so I'm, uh, pr it pretty much looks that way. Although okay. I prefer not to. That's, a, that's getting to be a crazy state. Oh yes, yes. I prefer not to, to be honest with you. And we may do uh, yeah. rethink that later on. Yeah. Well, when I was a young trainee. I was working like hell, Gil, to make probation mm -hmm. because I didn't have any money and I wasn't sure my car would even make it back to Florida. Yeah. So I couldn't afford to lose that job. But yeah. as a backup, I started checking around and I had a couple of friends in the Arizona State Highway Patrol. Had some other guys I knew in the California Highway Patrol. And one of the guys I'd worked with had been on the San Diego Police Department. And those were three places I was going to look for a job if I couldn't make it in the Border Patrol. Mm -hmm. Well, fortunately, I learned to speak enough Spanish to get by the 10-month exam. I knew the law, and I was one of their pistol shooters. So, you know, when I was in the Border Patrol, the three big courses were uh, Spanish immigration law, and uh, firearms training. Yeah. Those are the three major courses. I don't know what they are now. There's so much more been added, I'm sure. Oh, yes. But yeah. in those days, life was more simple. And Spanish got most everybody. Well, that hasn't changed much. And FBI checks. Uh, we lost a number of guys because they forgot to tell somebody something had happened before they joined the board. And a background investigation brought that out, and that was the end of it. Yeah, Spanish and um, Spanish and that uh, lie detector test is what's getting most of ours. Well, we, I never saw a lie detector. Never saw one, Gil. Me neither. Uh, they didn't have them, and uh, I don't know if I'd take one today or not. I don't think I would either, so, to be honest with you. I think they ought to trash can that because they're... I read something here a while back where some patrol agent's daughter, she would have been a third or fourth generation border patrolman was wiped out by the lie detector test. And I think that's a damn shame. Agreed. I think you need to hire these good candidates, give them a chance to see what they do. That's what the year probation is for. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. 
Well, sir, it's been a, a, a real pleasure sharing all this, uh, all your life history in the patrol and in your life and all those things. And again, one of the biggest reasons why I wanted this conversation was because uh, you are one of the pioneers of the Border Patrol for us, right? As one of the original patrol inspectors out there, you carved the way, you paved the way, you're part of our history, our heritage, our legacy that we um, that we all inherit today. And I think that we um, we owe you a little bit of gratitude for uh, for doing that for us. Well, basically, you know, I was a pain in the ass when I was a border patrol, <laughs> but eventually I grew up. I'm glad to see that hasn't changed. Okay, sir. Well, thank you for calling me. Well, God bless you, sir, and I really appreciate you uh, following up and calling me back. And uh, um, I look forward to maybe uh, talking again sometime. Okay. Well, I may be here another year or two. You just don't know. I'm in pretty decent health, but I'm getting pretty old, Gil. A lot of guys that I worked with have died. Yes. Yes, sir. Thanks for calling me. And thank you for calling me back, sir. Uh, Honor first. Okay, honor first. Well, old patrollers, that concludes episode three, not four of the Old Patrol HQ podcast, our interview with Old Patrol Inspector William Metcalf from Session 61. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And don't forget to buy all your great Old Patrol gear, your coins, your hats, your shirts at oldpatrolhq.bigcartel.com. God bless, Godspeed, and ain't no patrol like the Old Patrol. Honor first, honor always.